And then he hit me with a palm heel in the nose and must have dislodged a mucus plug because that is the most snot I have ever seen in my entire life. Ugh, sounds gross. Let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham. Florida promotion, Vern Gagne, superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkle. This is Cigars and Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilke, and I am sitting with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent. That ranges from Jim the Anvil Neidhart all the way to disorderly conduct. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications, as well as the proud owner of wrestling boots that were sewn in the 1950s and worn by the great John L. With 20 years of experience, he is a true Renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the one, the only, the incomparable Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Derek, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing fine. I'm I'm a bit off-put by this episode because I notice I don't have a format in front of me. Yeah, we're going to go off script a little bit here. Um... We've had a great response to the show so far, and so what I thought we'd do is we'd throw it out for some uh, listener questions. Oh, uh, the most common listener question that I get, I'm just going to answer it right now, because I'm a nerd. That's how I know this stuff. <laughs> well, yes, just same throwing here. that right up there. Uh, I find it funny that when I uh, pitch the podcast to people who are not wrestling fans and they want to know about it, I tell them they will not understand a single thing that's happening in it right. whatsoever. I'm like, this is like, imagine if someone just opened up the schematics to a lawnmower and just started reading the parts and the pieces and where things went, you would not understand what's going on. That's true. And wrestling has designed this to be, up until recently, the entire history of wrestling was hidden. So you, you wouldn't have found out about this stuff. You wouldn't have known everything that goes on behind the scenes. And it was in the promotion's advantage to hide that. Uh, it's been described to me that wrestling has both a history and a past. The promotion wants to tell you its version of history, but the past is what has occurred, you know, what people have seen. Right. Do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. The history yeah. could be fictional, but the past is real life. Right. So the history, they want you to know, uh, Hogan has never slammed Andre, but the past is that, well, he's not only slammed him, he slammed him in this promotion at a major show and Andre has been slammed numerous times over the years, right, but they don't right. want you to know that they don't want you to know that history. So they hope you don't remember the past, but it is funny now to see a lot of these now with the, the internet and, uh, people revealing their photo collections. You can do everything with computers. You absolutely can. Yeah. And you're starting to see stuff like, in fact, last week I saw a picture of Ernie Ladd slamming Andre. And like you say, it, sure. w- it was just, it's become kind of this commonplace now. But I remember, again, growing up and thinking, nobody has ever slammed Andre until WrestleMania three. True. 
And now it's just, it seemed like everybody was out there slamming him. Yep. Well, yeah, I know there's at least one YouTube clip that's on there. It's got like seven of them on there. Right. And that's a real nerd, yeah, I mean, right? Just well, the compilation of Andre slams. Good for them. Good Give me for a break, them. right? All right. So we're going to start this out um, right now. We had a question come in, and it's something actually that was kind of dear to my heart, too, because I agree with this, because I remember watching uh, Superstation TBS. We know we've talked about it so much. And uh, there was a segment uh, called Joe Pettacino Knows. <laughs> and as a kid, I remember asking myself, well, who is Joe Pettacino? And what the hell does he actually know? And because I don't think I ever was given a full explanation, or I never heard a full explanation of who this guy was. Why was he given the segment? Uh, why was it a part of the show? Um, how did it fit into things? How did he get himself into the, the, the program? I believe Joe Penasino was just a mark that got himself into the business. Um, he was in the, I believe, the Atlanta area. Again, just a minor promoter that shook the right hands and knew the right people. Um, hosted a wrestling segment where they had a contest to decide the next Miss Wrestling. So a lot of ladies would send in pictures and profiles and videotape for the program. And now in 2016, we're all so familiar with that long lineage of who Miss Wrestling has been, right? Right. Well, like Adrian Barbeau. Yes. Well, Adrian Barbeau was for uh, Roy Shires out in uh, California. Yeah. Yep. Uh, incidentally, just got a book when it was big time from Rock Rims, which is a history of wrestling in the Northern California area. Strongly recommended. Also, Rotten Run Stars book. Strongly recommended. Um, anyway, incident- the, the, oh, win- the, the winner of the Joe Penasino contest was Bonnie Blackstone, yes. who Joe Penasino wound up marrying. Yes, because then she had a segment as well, didn't she? Right. So, I mean, these were just personalities that got themselves into the business. Uh, the interesting thing about Joe Penasino was when Global first started in Texas, he claimed he had a Nigerian investor, and that's where all this money was coming from, and it was going to be this huge deal. But all of a sudden, they did like two, three TV tapings, and the money ran out, and suddenly Joe Penasino's gone. And it's back to, you know, Chaz and the Lightning Kid. Right, right. Now, uh, funny note with Bonnie Blackstone. Wore wigs. Uh, yes. And as a child, don't, I thought she don't. was related to the magician, Roy Blackstone. Ooh, I thought it was Harry Blackstone. Or Harry Blackstone. That's yeah. what I meant. Yes. And so... Was um, he... Uh, it's easy when you know the secret? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I always thought that there was this big world of wrestling, magic, magicians, the, the Blackstone connection. But now it's just, you know, that veil has been pulled back. So now right. it's definitely... No, they were just marks that got themselves into the business and had 15 minutes of fame. And now I believe Joe Penasino does uh, golf announcing. And again... We've talked about in the past so many times, good old boys network. We talk about this closed business. Here's a guy somehow able to buy himself in. Next thing you know, he's hosting a segment from a control room on Saturday nights on TBS. Sure, it's a control room. <laughs> well, it's, it's not just a set. It's, yeah, it's a control room. You're really you're ruining the. Uh, yeah, there's no Easter Bunny either. There's, okay. Well, Did I tell the Don Fargo story? I would like to hear the Don okay. Fargo story. Don Fargo. Uh, he would be worthy of mentioning on this show at some point. Uh, let's say Alabama does, does a TV promo, talks about and tells the kids that there's no such things as Santa Claus. The, the phone boards light up, blah, 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 blah. They make him do an apology because wrestling was true. You know, wrestling was live back then. Make him do an apology before the end of the show and he comes out. I was just kidding for what I said about the about Santa Claus. He's real. Believe your parents on that. 
but don't let him shit you about the Easter Bunny. And he walks <laughs> off. <laughs> That's great. Popular guy. And that way, that actually like was the the shit. Actually, did he say shit? I his book. He claims he did, but yeah, you know, he's dead now. So <laughs> so there's no no truly getting that one. So uh, another question that came in. And this one's not so much about, well, I mean, I guess it is about the history, but um, it's a little bit more personal to you. Uh, is there a particular clip or angle that you consider that's a must-see for people that are interested in the history of wrestling? Is there something that you, if you, so I guess I'm, I'm trying to decipher this because it is a strangely worded question, but you have someone who l- might be a current wrestler, a young guy, a young pup out in the, uh, mm-hmm. driving the towns. And uh, he doesn't have that history that you have. He doesn't have that background. You know, maybe he's limited to the Attitude Era. I, I hope he doesn't have forward. the history I have. Or well, else he should probably retire. Yes. Well, so <laughs> is there something that you you look at or you can point to and say, "Hey, listen, young guy, you should really check if this you know this is something that's really important or this is something that's really great um, that you need to know or you need to see and you need to see how this person does it." Is there some kind of a uh, default? Uh, clip or angle or something that uh, you uh, would recommend someone to watch? Is there something that can always a go-to clip or something that you show any of the guys? That is, that's a very difficult question to answer because of how the sport evolves and how current tastes are and everything like that. I am, of course, deferential to the late 70s, early 80s, where you still had that territory system of working where the secrets weren't as widely known, so you were able to get more out of less. Right. And it was more about that long sell, long buildup. I personally, uh, 20 years ago, I would have said the Magnum TA, Tully Blanchard, I quit match. Yep, yep. But there are so many other things that um have come along since then the hell in the cell and everything you know for brutality and such so it's really hard to say you need to keep going back to this because it's hard to keep it's hard to keep the classics at the forefront when you've got so much new material coming out oh right um i will say personally what i like to do is like watch watch a full wwf msg house show from the 70s or 80s not so much just to watch the work in the match, but how the matches fit into the larger picture as a whole. In the sense that you have the the less exciting but still compelling matches at the front, and then you build up to where you have the first match that's got some heat coming in, and then maybe you know you have your your uh, heavyweight title right before the intermission, so you can sell tickets. And then how do they build up the second half of the card? So it's. It, the quick answer is no, because wrestling is so uh, almost ethereal that it's hard. It's like trying to pin smoke. Like, no, this is the best. No, now this is the best. So it's really hard to pick out a certain thing like that. Right. It all depends on what you're researching. And if you have a goal, then maybe I can suggest something in that respect for you. Sure. But it gets difficult for me. For example, the, uh, oh, the tag team partner that doesn't want to tag everybody will be like, oh, that's the Rockers gimmick, but I still remember it from Strike Force and even right. you know, the, the Blackjacks before right. that. I mean, right. it's the same. Um, outside of wrestling, I've always wondered with, like, we see movies being recycled and remade. Like, I always wonder if, if there's actually a finite number of stories that are able to be told 
Like, I wonder that in wrestling as well. It's like, are there only a finite number of situations that can be recycled? Right. And how do you take it and make it something new and original? Each right. Time? Right. But it still, you know, has the basic parts. It's just how do you dress it up? Right. Now, um, I guess. So, to answer your question, no. No. But okay. So then, but let me see if I can kind of pinpoint a little bit more here. And I'm going to add to that or change that a little bit. What's your guilty pleasure? Like, if there is there something like. You know, we talked already, Last Battle of Atlanta, guilty pleasure. Um, Piper, uh, one of my guilty pleasures is showing people Roddy Piper turning Art Bar into the juicer. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's so crazy and it's so ridiculous. And just the way it unfolds in front of you when you're watching it, uh, it's it's one of those things where it's just they can't do it anymore. It's actually two guys coming out doing a promo and one guy just turns him into this character just and magic. Just boom and there you go and here it is and i'm pour, pouring baby powder over your head and i think things like that like do you have any guilty pleasures that something that you keep in your back pocket that's a real like oh you think that's good let me show you this one i mean because even well, here i'm going to recycle our last battle of atlanta episode we're sitting here we do that episode and at the end i'm like hey have you ever seen brett wayne bleeding profusely yeah. from, and we bring it up and it's him i mean a bucket of blood he looked like carrie yes, uh, yes. At, at the prom scene uh but that's what i'm saying like do you have anything that's like a go-to like a guilty pleasure that you like that you throw out there i remember you talking about the invader the uh the the fountain of blood the fountain of blood that's not so much a guilty pleasure as much as the jimmy valiant down and out interviews where he brings out was it Big Mama? Yes. Big Mama. She's going to take care of Baby Doll. <laughs> but just the fact that you're watching this and it's all happy and they're all together and all of a sudden you just realize, like, Jimmy Valiant just picked up a hooker. Right. What? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, th- this is what we're going to get behind now. So It was a different time. It was as a different time. As we've pointed out so many, and, many times. And it's come out later that uh, Big Mama was his wife at the time named Felicia, nicknamed Flea, who is almost not mentioned at all in his in Jimmy Valiant's book. Really? It's very interesting. All he mentions is that that marriage ended when eight o'clock in the morning one day a Mecklen like Mecklenburg County Sheriff's officer knocked on his door and said, I've got a paternity suit for you, but I didn't want to take it down to the arena so the other wrestlers would see it. <laughs> and he found out he had an eight year old kid. That's that Southern gentleman charm that uh <laughs> <laughs> Boogie. Boogie had his ladies. Yes. Well, so, and that's a great point. One of the questions that we did uh, have come up, we've talked a lot about the book Chokehold in past episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, someone had asked the question, if you had, a, if there were like five books, I mean, I know there's so many and we've, Ooh, yeah. like, what would you, what are the quintessential reads for you? What would you say? Uh, wow. Uh, Luthez Hooker. Um, Piggybacking off of the Jimmy Valiant story. Ha ha. Uh, no, the Luthez book is good. Uh, anything, anything from Crowbar Press is good. I'm just gonna sure. No, and that, that. Yeah, absolutely great stuff. Uh, but there's that for the history. Uh, Tim Hornbaker has. Oh, uh, I'm just gonna go to there's the the three books, the tag teams, the heels, and the faces. Yes, I think those are put out by Greg Oliver. Yes, uh, that that's a good jumping off point right there. And from there, you can you can jump to other things. There was another one put out. I want to say it was David Shoemaker put out Inside the Squared Circle, which was like a history of wrestling that had a lot of 
little asides in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is just a personal meandering here. My problem with wrestling literature is much like my problem with uh, literature about the carnival that I also researched. Right. Is that I'm starting to get books now that I read, but I realize I either recognize or I'm familiar with the sources that that book is using. Okay. Yep. You know, to, to recycle that information. So it's kind of like, uh, well, this is a good retelling of the story. You right. Know? Right. Now, uh, then to go against that, what about, is there a book or a couple books that frustrate you to no end? And I'm not talking about the pro wrestling for dummies book or, right. you know, just those. Uh, there was a scholastic bo- ones. There was a real. book called The Wrestler, and I don't remember the author on it. And this book infuriated me because, like, the first half it was about uh, this worker getting into the Chicago wrestling scene in the early '60s, and it had a lot of detailed information, like you would get your booking information on postcards that came from the office and stuff like that, and you had to send return mail. I mean, it was very interesting and very detailed. But the protagonist in the story was also getting into bodybuilding to improve his body and uh, started to experiment with different things, not steroids, but they started drinking uh, cow's blood, you know, as a supplement, which suddenly halfway through the book, now our protagonist is a flesh-eating vampire. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's just like... In the space of like four pages, you're just like, no, right? Just what completely what, went downhill? What happened? Is this a dream? No, yeah, it was just it was so horrible. So it was one of those books. I should have kept it for the front half and devoured that more, but it was one of those that I sent off to a friend of mine saying, "Hey, you're gonna love this till about halfway through." And then that was yeah, yeah that was the but end. it was called the wrestler. But I've only I haven't seen it. it this was pre the uh, the movie that came out. Okay. So and but what about are there any actual wrestlers in the business any of their books like i felt like um was it the arn anderson forever book well yeah arn's book anything that's written in kayfabe um uh i guess steve williams was kind of like that but i mean there are books that like like china i just have no desire right to read. right no like i say i know like the, the, the kind of the popular ones are the mainstream uh-huh. ones i just always thought i was really excited to read the arn anderson book and then when i realized i felt like half of it was kayfabe and the other half yeah it was just it just kind of went back and forth uh i was very disappointed in mark lewin's book you know the the purple haze yeah like he wrote a book and it was like 35 bucks i was like okay it's 35 it's good you get it and it was barely bigger than a children's book it was like a glorified magazine article oh really yeah and like you know all the stuff he did well when you went here i went there and it was really good and then i booked for a while and then i burned out and i went over here then i walked out of the ocean yeah yeah in florida and it's just like oh okay well that was 35 bucks well spent well but it's it's in the collection but it was my well it was i sent it to my buddy rocco so oh very nice shout out to rocco shout out to rocco (laughs) melce On August 1st, 1953, legendary Chicago Cubs announcer Jack Brickhouse was working his second job, vouching for professional wrestling. In television's infancy in the early 1950s, the Newmont Network turned to Fred Kohler's Chicago wrestling outfit to fill some time. What questions there were about the sport's validity were assuaged by the involvement of reputable newsmen like Brickhouse, but on this night, the broadcaster would face a difficult task. He had to interview the world's second most famous Nazi. I am going to win the title and take it back to Germany where it belongs, said Hans Schmidt. I will never give an American a crack at it. 
Brickhouse bristled and pointed out that German immigrants in America resented him because he gave them a bad reputation. I don't care about them. Let them learn the hard way like I did. People who teach sportsmanship to their children are crazy. The only answer is to win at any cost. I don't like the fans. As a matter of fact, I hate them. At this point, Brickhouse snatched the mic away. This Schmidt was not the sort of athlete he was accustomed to interviewing. As far as I'm concerned, this interview is over, Brickhouse said. There had been wrestling villains before Hans Schmidt, but never one quite as heelish as this. The bad guys of earlier eras were mostly painted in the subtle hues of receding hairlines and roughneck mannerisms. There had been foreign nationals such as Stanislaw Sabisco and Georg Hackenschmidt, both champions who tended to get booed by American crowds. But never had a wrestler so inflamed geopolitical biases as Hans Schmidt. To put it bluntly, he was hated. Really, truly hated. According to Jack Brickhouse, the Dumont Network got 5,000 letters and telegrams denouncing the Teuton Terror, as Schmidt was known. For Hans Schmidt, though, this was a star-making moment. In the decade following World War II, Schmidt would challenge for the World Heavyweight Championship numerous times, including a string of matches against the iconic Luthez, with whom he was feuding at the time of the above interview. He also had notable feuds with champs Pat O'Connor, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, Gene Kaniski, Jack Briscoe, and then again with Luthez during his ill-conceived second reign. Though he would hold lesser championships throughout his career, Schmidt lost every one of those heavyweight title bids. Presumably, this helped in some small way to soothe the collective memory of the American public. But the ecstasy of his losses was only possible because of the ire his personality created and the wounds his thick German accent reopened. After that fateful interview with Brickhouse, a Mrs. Naomi T. Rogers of Syracuse vented her outrage to her local paper. I nearly smashed our TV set, she wrote. I am urging every one of you as American citizens to please write to our President Eisenhower and demand the deportation of this Hans Schmidt from our country immediately. There is enough corruption without importing it. Alas, if they were going to deport Schmidt, it wouldn't be to Germany. Hans Schmidt was really Guy LaRose from Joliet, Quebec, Canada, who had a bit of fair success wrestling in the United States under his own name. While passing through Boston in 1951, he caught the eye of local pro wrestling promoter named Paul Bowser, who thought LaRose's tall frame, geometric features, and receding hairline made him the perfect Nazi. Schmidt once expressed, When I got to the States, people were making jokes. Bowser was German, and he told me I looked like a German. That's when he gave me the name. Bowser wasn't a stickler for tradition, nor was he afraid to upend convention to make fans swoon. Schmidt was the last big star he made before he retired, but what a creation Hans Schmidt was. The origin of Hans Schmidt's nom de ring is unclear, though it was possibly inspired by the Buchenwald defendant of the same name, the attendant to the concentration camp head Hermann Pister. The name was also in the national memory from the famed trial of a Catholic priest named Hans Schmidt who attempted to make counterfeit money, murdered and dismembered a girl named Anna Amuller, and intended to murder even more people as a means to defraud insurance companies. Schmidt flouted the rules of the squared circle, brutally kicking his opponents, a tendency that earned him the locker room nickname Footsie and tossing them from the ring onto the floor. He was touted as having spent two years in a French POW camp during the war, which helped manifest his toughness and anger issues. He often attacked referees, cheated brazenly, 
and remain seated during the national anthem. All of these traits would become staples of villainy in the wrestling world, but they were new and genuinely appalling in Hans Schmidt's day. He didn't need to carry a Nazi flag or goose step to the ring. This was a subtler time, and Schmidt's assault on morality and good sportsmanship was, to the mid-century sports world, as devastating as the backbreaker with which he ended his matches. Schmidt emerged from a period in which wrestling was largely based on immigrant nationalism. Greeks, for instance, were good guys in front of Greek audiences and villains elsewhere, and wrestlers would often change their land of origin from night to night to play up to a specific crowd. Schmidt played a role in this phenomenon, but he evolved into something much larger, a representation of pure evil. As New York promoter Al Mayer put it to A.J. Liebling in a 1954 New Yorker piece, nationalism is dead. That was neighborhood stuff. On television, it would mean nothing because you wouldn't know which nationality to make the villain. What the new wrestling public is interested in is villainy is villainy, virtue is virtue. On January 16, 1953, six months before that fateful Brickhouse interview, Schmidt fought Lou Thez, who, as we all know, would go on to become a legendary champion of the sport. The cover of that month's issue of the magazine, Wrestling As You Like It, had a photo of Schmidt advancing with a truly menacing look on his face. The understated cover line, Hans Schmidt, he can annoy you. So is there a holy grail of, is there a holy grail of a book uh, out there that's not, because isn't like the Gary Hart book is uh, out of print right now? Yeah, the Gary Hart book is out of print. I own it, but it's an incredible copy. I believe I currently have mine on loan to people. Um, Incredible book. Uh, Yeah. Just just well-written, one of the best books on wrestling I've seen. Now, I also know, too, that memorabilia-wise, you have some things, some treats and trinkets. Uh, not as much. I have odd signatures on stuff. Right. I have my PWI Lords of the Ring signed by Harley Race, a copy of Vern Gagne's The Wrestler signed by Billy Robinson, a copy of the haircut match signed yep. by Lawler. But my favorite is a Jack LaLanne DVD signed by Greg Valentine. Because, Explain. Uh, oh, of course. One of my favorite stories. Um, Valentine comes in, and everybody's... There was always real stiff, like, oh, you don't want to talk to Valentine. He's stiff. He won't talk to you in the corner. It's like, no, you just go up and talk to him. He's, he's a pretty nice guy. So one time I saw him on a chair, like, doing ab crunches on a chair. And I was like, oh, did you learn that at the heart? You know, because he was in the dungeon. I was like, uh, no, Jack LaLanne had this uh, bunch of exercises you could do with a chair and with a towel. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. Boom. Um, combing the internets, I suddenly I find this DVD of Jack LaLanne's chair and towel exercises. I'm like, oh, okay. So I bought this and threw it in my bag for the next time I see Valentine. Go up to him and I'm like, hey, could you sign this for me? And I tell him the story of everything. He's like, oh, okay. And he signs it off. And now and I that have, was that. And now I have a Jack LaLanne DVD signed by Greg Valentine. Yeah, that's actually pretty Holmes. awesome. No, that's pretty cool. Uh, I think because that at least has a story to it. Yeah, well, that's I would rather do something like that. Um, I'm not a big fan of getting my picture taken with people, unless it, you know, is integral to the plot or whatever. But I'm not a big fan of the thumbs up. Hey, I'm with so and so. I'd rather have them sign something funny or like take a picture of our fists together or something like that. Just 
just not the hey and again holding out for the ole anderson picture of him wrapping his hand around your wrist twice i just know it will it would <laughs> it just might look at me and say well you son of a bitch get out of here <laughs> thanks ole that's all i wanted well it's nicer than what he called jim barnett <laughs> yes very true that's very very true um so we're gonna move along here we have uh, another question uh, are there any other matches or events that are considered lost similar to the way that the last battle of Atlanta was? Uh, that's uh, interesting question. I'm going to say no, not, not in the sense that the last battle of Atlanta had that Holy grail status, but I believe we're at a point now that all of the wrestling that's been preserved, uh, you know, on videotape, Everything that's available is out there right now. Right. So, like anything before 1980 or even 1985 that's not known to exist at this moment most likely does not exist. Okay. So, that's really sad because so much of the magic of like San Francisco and 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 just all these places that had such a rich history that's all gone. Right. Uh, like Flair said, well, everybody liked this match we had me uh, Steamboat and I had at Wrestle War '89. We were doing that every night in the Carolinas, you know, right. all of that stuff. Only the people in the arena saw that. So, so just amazing. As a, a tape trader, <sighs> someone who did the tapes back uh-huh. in the day, what would you say when you were doing that, when you're kind of just getting in, what was one of the tapes that you got that you were just like, wow, like this is, this is something like, was there something that just blew your mind? Well, I was getting a lot of best ofs at that time. Okay. But I also didn't didn't really understand how that worked in the tape trading world. Because like, oh, this person has a best of Buzz Sawyer and you get it and you're looking at it and all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is, isn't necessarily a best of. It's just all the footage we had. Yeah. <laughs> so we just throw, throw everything it on, there. on. So that was kind of something like that. Um I guess very late, it wasn't so much a tape trading, but the AAA When Worlds Collide pay-per-view. Right. Like that blew me away as something different. I remember that as well. Yeah, and that that's something that I rewatched over and over again just to try and figure it out. Well, and I think including uh, Tito Santana getting lost in <laughs> in his match yes. because even though he's Hispanic, he doesn't work lucha. So there's several times where he's clearly turning to Two Code Scorpio saying, "Where are we?" Right. Yeah, I, I know. I always thought that was a Where real tell. Okay, got it. Boom. But even that, um, that was the time too. I think, you know, everything kind of going backwards, that was my introduction to uh-huh. Art Bar. Oh, right. Right on. Yeah. So that, you know, it's like, oh, here's this wrestler that died because I, you know, it had been a couple years uh, uh-huh. uh, after that uh, when World's Clyde pay-per-view. And then saying, oh, here's our bar, and then someone being like, oh, well, you should see this, and of course not having access at that point. And then when you look at people selling like a Best of Portland tape, you're not sure what you're going to find, and then being able to stumble upon and find the juicer stuff and and whatnot. Uh, That was always really a a fun thing I enjoyed, especially when you got a tape from somebody else is figuring out what was included on there versus... You know, like what other extras do they have on there? Like, is there TV afterwards and stuff like that? And there's been numerous stories of people like letting a tape play through only to find out that they put like 15 seconds of hardcore male pornography at the end of the tape <laughs> just to just to nail just people like that uh what excuse me one of the funniest things i got was a collection advertised as black and white lucha movies from the 50s and 60s so it was all cutouts of wrestling sequences from the mexican wrestling movies but 
in addition to the wrestling sequences, it had like all of these sequences that you were just watching and you didn't really know what was going on until it tipped over. It's like, oh, these are two men shirtless talking to each other or, oh, these are here's somebody walking around in his underwear. So it became fun as you were going through this tape when it came to a new scene trying to fe- wait for the, why was this included on this tape? And you're just sure. like, da, 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 da. ah, there it is right there. <laughs> so again, not, not judging. It was just kind of interesting it, to watch. It, and like, it was what it was. Like one, there's two guys talking, they're in a gym and what's going on? And somebody's up on a pommel horse and suddenly they like spread their legs and do a full split. And you're like, oh, that's it. That's, that's why this is on here. Well, so this next question I thought was an interesting one and I was unaware of it. And it really kind of piqued my interest. Uh, is it true, and this ties into the Lucha thing, is it true that Mil Mascaris was actually kind of a bad wrestler or he was hard to work with? Uh, from what I understand, he was very difficult to work with. How so? In that his matches were all about him. Just, okay. Yeah. Getting and all his stuff in. Basically. Getting all of his stuff in, looking strong, not selling. Like, he he wasn't there to make anybody else look good. And this led to numerous problems. Like, when, he, when Vince Sr. was bringing him in to New York against superstar Billy Graham, he didn't want to do the job in the, in the match against the champion. Right. Like, no, I'm I'm a movie star. But I'm sure offering no solution. Yeah, just, how to I'm just not I'm I not losing. I'm not losing. Right. So they built up a deal where Backlund came out with Mascaris and uh, Superstar Graham, and Backlund got into it, which led to a DQ, which meant that okay, now the issue with Mascaris is off to the side, and we're building up Backlund and Graham. Right. But just very notable for that. Um, Cactus Jack calls him out in his first book as just being horrible to work with. Okay. Uh, you know, like giving him a huge maneuver and all of a sudden turns around and he's standing right there like, oh, I'm not going to sell any of your shit. So That bad. Wow. Yeah, but it, in his defense, I mean, this was a very old school, I need to protect my character. I'm not going to let anybody get me in a position where they could hurt me or go over. But right. I mean, the guy's currently 77 and he still refuses to do jobs because in his mind, he's still a star. Right. Well, and I think, too, I mean, if he's coming from Mexico where he's this beloved star, like, you know, sure. to the moon. Sure. Right. But then he comes to New York or he comes somewhere else in the United States. Mm-hmm. And maybe I mean, I think he was more of an attraction, wouldn't you say? Than oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he was very much the attraction that came in. Ooh, he's all flashy and everything. But once you saw the same thing over and over, it was pretty bad. Uh, he was made the IWA champion of Eddie Einhorn's gig when he tried to go national because Eddie Einhorn recognized him from the magazines, but didn't didn't really know the division between attraction and you know repeatable talent and right. everything like that. So as far as I know, uh, Mascara still holds that title. Like he never jobbed for it and still has the belt. Really? Yeah. Of of a company that went out of business forty years ago. Yeah. Well, and I, <laughs> you know, you think about that. Yeah. You, you think about the difference between. Uh, an attraction or someone coming in and actually running uh, a short program or doing a short stint in an area and right. you realize like something like uh like mascaris there he's he can't speak english uh, not very not, well not very well uh, which least. is real funny if you ever look at the old iwa footage and you see jack reynolds trying to get an interview out of mascaris and Mascaris's answers have nothing to do with the question that's been asked <laughs> and there's one i swear like you're watching it and the film goes black, but before the tape cuts, you can hear people in the the booth laughing just because it's just like, oh my god, 
Right. Like, what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah. What What do you do with that? I, it just, um, yeah, getting back to attraction, yes. uh, a good modern example or modernish example would be Abdullah the Butcher. Right. You know, would come in and he was there for, you know, four weeks because once you've seen him cut somebody open and they bleed all over each other, like, what else can you really do with right. that? Now, I noticed you pointed something out to me. Did he, was he really doing the Wilhelm scream? During the match one time? Oh, he had that shriek that he did, but I doubt it was the actual Wilhelm. Well, because like, you said it, I was like, what? That's crazy. Is he trying to like mimic the, the Wilhelm uh, scream? Yeah, it was really weird. Like, I haven't seen him do it in U.S. matches, but like in Japan, one with Billy Robinson, Billy Robinson kicks him, and it's just this ear-piercing scream Yeah, that just doesn't, it's like, okay, well, I guess that hurt. Or <laughs> Have you ever been to his restaurant? Yes. Yes, What'd I have. What do you think? Uh, it was... Very much a restaurant. Yes, agreed. Um, he was not there. There were pictures all over the place. This was when I was down in Atlanta for that other camp. But the most notable thing was they were playing a Best of Abdullah the Butcher in Puerto Rico tape on the TVs, and the soundtrack um, was the song Hungry from King Cobra. Wow. Which was, uh, I believe that was Carmine Apice's side project yes. at one time. That um, Also known for Iron Eagle 3, I believe. <laughs> That's a deep cut. Yes. Um, I will say they gave too much white bread. I think I got oh, a okay. half I think I got a half loaf of white bread with my rib tips. Oh, see, I got the Chinese food. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, I went for the rib tips. Uh that restaurant is gone now, but it way. is gone. Yeah, yeah. It's totally like they showed the shell of it on the internet. Ah, it's too bad. I just hope the Korea place is still open. I had the um I also bought a hat while I was there. Yes, I have a hat as well. Yes. I thought that was cool. That was the I believe that was the second or third year I w- uh, that I was married. And yeah, we went good. to visit family in Atlanta. And I said to my wife, hey, uh, let, can we go eat somewhere? Yeah, we got to do this. We got to do this. And yeah, then we walk in and, and there's that cr- big painting of him. like the it's not Oh, with side. him and his brothers? Yes, yeah, yes. Yep. And she's like, what did, where did you take me to? Um, yeah, that was a great time. Uh, all right. So let, speaking of that, here's another question that ties in. Uh, what are your thoughts on blood in matches? What is your thought? Because you're you're someone who, uh, as I know, you when you work, you haven't really done too much of a, uh, a, a hardcore gimmick ever. No, uh, but I've done like it that. a handful of times when the storyline. I still feel it has a place when it's used correctly. Um, that's just me. Like if 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 there's an assault or something, and you need to ramp up. You need to ramp up the angle a little bit. I feel it could be used judiciously like that. Okay. But I'm not a big fan of, oh, I'm going to get popped in the head, and then I'm just going to try and bleed all over you, and you bleed all over me like a hardcore match. To me, right. I'm just going to go on the record and say it. To me, that seems kind of masturbatory Sure. When you, when you get in a deal like that. But when you use it to as punctuation or a garnish, like you're setting up an angle for something, then yes, by all means a little color just shocks the general populace and oh my god he's bleeding and they don't think about well why is he bleeding from his forehead and all this right other stuff. right it's just it's a visual shorthand to get a point over um i think it needs its use needs to be regulated and controlled by the office so that you don't get overboard with right it. gotcha excellent well i mean but that's just me you know i yeah I, I definitely think it's you know different strokes for different folks when it comes to that um derek this has been fun. It's been insightful. Just a few uh, questions from our audience. We definitely will be uh, revisiting this in the future again. Um, but we're going to wrap it up for this time now. 
I was thinking, uh, we, we came up with a nice list of things to go through, things we'd like to cover. And uh, next episode, I'm thinking that we'd go and we visit St. Louis. Okay. Does that sound all right? Sam Muchnick in the chase. Okay. There's Is been that, a lot done on that. I think yeah. we can uh I think we can definitely get together and do something on that. And then we have some other really great ones coming down the the trail after that. But uh I think next time we'll we'll handle St. Louis wrestling Got and it. go from there. Uh so ladies and gentlemen, once again, you've been listening to Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire. I am your co-host. I just want to say that these were viewer questions, and as with any time, if anybody out there has a question or a perspective that we got wrong, please contact us. Let us know. We want to have that conversation and figure out what was really going on. Absolutely. Rip Rogers, I'm talking to you. And again, the offer is still out there for anybody that experienced studio wrestling, whether it be AWA, Georgia Championship Wrestling, anywhere. We'd love to hear from you. That would be fantastic. So I'll start again, and I will say... You have been listening to Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. I am your co-host, Jay Gilke. We want to thank Kyle Arpke, our sound engineer. And we are heard exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. And we will see you next time. <laughs>